Well, this morning as we continue in our worship service, as the purple otter just pointed out, we are going to be looking at the Hebrews journeying out of Egypt as we begin a few week series titled A Journey into the Wilderness. And as we continue in that time, we're going to be looking at the Israelites, the Hebrew slaves, as they journey out of slavery under Pharaoh, through the Red Sea, and into the wilderness. And many of us, if we're honest, have really been thinking about how the time that we've been in has felt a little bit like wilderness, a little bit like aimlessly journeying in the desert, not sure exactly where we are headed or where we are going. But I think even in that, we have something that we can learn from this group of Israelites who had an uncertain future ahead of them, who didn't know where they were going as well. And so as we journey into the wilderness with the Hebrew slaves today, we are going to start by looking at the point where they journey out of Egypt. Now the passage has a few more verses than usual, so the words will not be on the screen, but if you have a Bible or a mobile device, I invite you to turn or swipe to Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 31 together. Exodus 14, 19 through 31. The angel of God who was going before them, before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other, meaning the two Egyptians and Israelites, the entire night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their chariot drivers." So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as we look at this passage, and all of us know this passage, it's 
literally one of the most famous biblical scripture stories that in the entire world. We've had a gazillion movies made about it, including Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, or if you've seen the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt. There's a lot of different adaptations of the Israelites, the Hebrew slaves, leaving Egypt and fleeing Pharaoh into the sea. But just a backstory for some of you who maybe haven't encountered this story recently. A long time ago, 400 years before this story, or give or take a few years, a guy named Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, one of uh, the brothers of the 12 uh, guys who would eventually become the namesakes for the tribes of Israel, was a, a brother who was loved by his father. And his father loved him so much that his brothers didn't like him very much for that reason, and so they sold him into slavery. And after a few years, Joseph becomes well known for being able to interpret dreams, eventually raising himself up to Pharaoh's house and interpreting some dreams there. And so Pharaoh gives him power, gives him a leadership position in Egypt. And so one of the dreams that he interprets, Joseph says, there's going to be a famine. And Egypt can get ahead of the famine if we go ahead and start storing up food now. And So that's exactly what they do. And sure enough, a drought comes and a famine comes and Egypt becomes the place that has all the food. And so in a turning of the tables, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because they don't have any food where they live. And they say to Joseph, we need food. Now, of course, they don't recognize him. It's been a very long time, but he recognizes them. And after this very dramatic meal where he doesn't tell them who he is and then starts doing some tricky things with gold cups and keeping one of his brothers behind, and do it, he finally reveals who he is. And they have this big get-together where Joseph forgives his brothers for what they have done and then says, bring my father and all of our people to Egypt. And they, we will live here in this land where there is food and we will prosper here. Well, that works for a while. But Scripture says that after a certain amount of time, after Joseph had died, a Pharaoh came into power who did not remember Joseph. And this Pharaoh looks out at the Israelites, at these Hebrews who are there in Egypt and says, whoa, there are so many of them, they're starting to outnumber the Egyptians. And if we don't stop this right now, if we don't find a way to control them, well, they're going to take over. And then the kingdom of Egypt that's ruled by Pharaoh will be no more. And so Pharaoh comes up with an idea. What if we enslaved them? What if we made them build things for us? What if we made them serve in our houses? What if we controlled them in that way? And I guess Pharaoh's advisors at the time thought that was a good idea, and so that's exactly what they did. And so according to Scripture, for 430 years, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. And so they are there, they're enslaved in Egypt, and they begin to cry out to God. I imagine they did that many times. And God, is God, God often does sends someone, sends a human, sends one of us, sends Moses to Pharaoh. Now, Moses and Pharaoh knew each other. We don't know if in the Charlton Heston movie where they were basically brothers fighting each other, play fighting or whatever is true, but Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And so there's a thought that Moses knew who Pharaoh was. And Moses comes to Pharaoh in the famous uttering, the Lord God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Pharaoh says no over and over again. And so God sends 12 plagues to Egypt. And the last of the plagues is the Passover, the killing, the killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt, including the Hebrew slaves. But they, of course, mark their doors for protection. And Pharaoh's own son falls ill and dies. 
And so in that moment of grief, Pharaoh says, get them out of here. Tired of looking at them. I can't deal with this anymore. These plagues are too much. My son is now dead. Get them out. And so we're told that the Hebrews begin to make a journey out of Egypt. And they get to the wilderness and they journey a little bit further until they get to what we now know as the Red Sea. And they make camp there at the Red Sea. But at some point, while they are on their way there, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, what in the world was I thinking? Why would we give up 430 years of having these slaves to serve us? Let's go get them and bring them back. Remember, this is 430 years. Not a single Egyptian and not a single Hebrew was alive at the beginning of this. All either one of those groups has ever known is that the Egyptians had the Hebrews to serve them in however they wanted to serve. And we know from Moses' backstory that it wasn't a pleasant experience for the Hebrews. They were persecuted, they were oppressed, they were beaten, they were probably killed, and they just didn't have it easy. But Pharaoh begins to chase after them, and we're told in our passage we just read that the pillar of fire that had been guiding them towards where they needed to go moves behind them and comes between the two armies. Uh, the armies being a relative term here, because of course Egypt had chariots and horsemen and all of the might of Egypt, and the Hebrews had... I guess whatever tools they stole when they left Egypt. And so they're sitting there on the sea and they start to get afraid. Because they look ahead and they see water and they can see the other side where they need to get to, but they have no way of getting there. And they look back and I guess probably through this cloud can see the Egyptian army and they're going at some point this cloud has to let up and Pharaoh's going to get us and take us back. And so they begin to get afraid. Because you see, even as the sea parted that day in Egypt, as they saw God giving them a way out, they were still afraid. The Hebrews faced multiple waves that day. The first wave that they faced was the wave of fear. Well, if we journey out into the water, even though it's split, what if it crashes back down on us? What if we drown here? As they looked back, what if Pharaoh gets to us? Maybe he'll take some of us back into slavery. But Pharaoh may need to make example of quite a few hundred of us. What if Pharaoh starts to kill us? What do we do with that? And they begin to get afraid. They also face waves of oppression. And they had faced this wave for 430 years. They knew that if Pharaoh came and got them, that they would never break free again. And so they're worried, what if we are drugged back into that life? They also face waves of the unknown. Even as they journey out into the Red Sea on the dry land and can see the shore on the other side, they begin to shake in their boots or sandals a bit because they are worried about what may be ahead of them. To the point where they turn to Moses and they say, is it not better to serve in Egypt than to die in the wilderness? They begin to look ahead and see God providing a way, and even as they're walking on that dry land, waves of water on either side, they still, some of them, look back and go, well, maybe the Egyptians aren't that bad. Maybe not being free would be better than dying out there. At least back there we had some sort of house. At least back there we had food because they had to feed us to keep us strong to serve them. At least back there we knew that we could at least live. But up there... In front of us? We don't know what's out there. Remember, generations of Hebrews had been enslaved in Egypt 430 years. They didn't know what was out in the wilderness. Pharaoh didn't let them go on excursions on their days off to go out and walk around to see what it was like. 
They didn't know what food was out there. They didn't know what houses were out there. All they saw was sand and desert and other things. Isn't that better for us to go back and serve in slavery and die in the wilderness? Well, as we as people of faith in 2020 look out into our own journey into the wilderness today, we also face similar waves today. We face waves of fear because we look into a world that is constantly changing. Everything is changing around us. If we are people who are news junkies, then you constantly are in fear. It doesn't matter which news site you watch or which bias it may have. It doesn't matter because all of them carry footage that strikes fear into the hearts of us on a regular basis. And this week as I looked at the news myself, I saw the California wildfires. And one of the the news sources out there has dubbed it the California dream is now the California destruction. As houses are being destroyed, as more people die every day, as countless amounts of wildlife is burned to death, as this continues to spread. We look at things like this in our world, and maybe on the East Coast it's more about hurricanes. We tend to be East Coast-centric over here and forget about the West. But people over there are afraid, and we have similar things here that worry us. We face waves of fear as we look out into the world. Over the last few months, our nation has faced a wave of fear about the unrest around racial injustice and the racial system that has been a part of our nation for a while as people have protested, even leading to destruction, and we are afraid. What does this mean? It doesn't seem to be ending. It hasn't faded away when it got hot outside. It didn't fade away. It probably won't fade away when it gets cold outside. What do we do in the face of this? And is there something that we're supposed to be doing? Is there a way to address this that will help abate the unrest that's here and help us move forward? We face a wave of fear. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention COVID-19 because even though here in Benson, it hasn't really been a big deal too much, over almost a million people have died worldwide. Over 190,000 here in America. And you would be fooling yourself on some level, even if you feel a little more comfortable maybe than other people, if you didn't think from time to time, I wonder if COVID is here in Benson. I wonder if it's at Food Line. I wonder if it's one of my friends has it and I don't know it. I wonder if I have it. From time to time, we think about that even as we grow more comfortable. We face waves of fear today. Our world also has seen waves of oppression and continues to do that today. Now, many of us as Christians in America, the, the old rap is that we like to say we are oppressed. We are an oppressed people here in America. We don't get to pray in our schools. We don't get to do other things. The reality of it is, though, we're sitting in a sanctuary on a Sunday morning, not worried about being drug out of here because we're worshiping. When I was in high school, even though prayer wasn't a government-mandated thing any longer in the school, I was allowed to pray for my lunch. I was allowed to be a leader of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and lead prayer services. I was allowed to do all of that. Teachers were allowed to stand beside me in that. We were allowed to do all of that. And so time and time again, as we as Christians feel persecuted, the reality of it is that shifts with the political season on how we feel about it. It shifts with time as things begin to change. And it shifts as we look out into our world, into other nations where people of faith, of all faiths, are persecuted, but even Christians. Particularly, and here's a picture of a church in Syria that was destroyed, not by terrorists per se, but by the government. 
Because they didn't want Christians to be in their nation. There are places where sanctuaries are literally reduced to rubble just simply because Christians gather there. As we look a little closer to home and think about oppression in our own nation, we do think back to the protests of late. And we think about how black Americans in our nation just 52 years ago, 52 years ago the Civil Rights Act of 1968 was signed into order. And up until that point, black Americans and white Americans didn't shop together, they didn't eat together, they didn't do anything together. And if you're like me, who is a person that was born in the South and raised by white family members in the South, you may have had grandparents or great-grandparents who were the people that didn't want black Americans to eat with them or sit with them or shop with them. To my family, I'll admit that. And just 52 years ago, we saw that ongoing oppression in our nation. We also today kind of have this weird grappling thing that we have to do because as we talk about the Hebrew slaves in Egypt in slavery for 430 years, it's kind of hard to ignore the 400 years of slavery in our own nation where the ancestors of our black neighbors may have been owned by the ancestors of our white neighbors just 155 years ago. The Civil War has only been over for 155 years. Relative, that's not a long time. As a matter of fact, World War II, the end of World War II is closer to the end of the Civil War than it is to recent history. And so as we look into the world, World War I, sorry, don't call me on the math, but as we look into our history, we have to face this. Waves of fear, waves of oppression, and of course, waves of unknown, because all of us know the waves of the unknown. As we look at unto a world and we can't see what possibly is ahead of us, and it causes the fear. It causes even some self-oppression. I'll never make it forward. This must be the end. There is no hope beyond this. And so we look ahead and like those Hebrews, we start to say, wouldn't it be better just to go back? Maybe back wasn't all that great, but at least I knew what was coming. At least I knew when it was normal what I could do day to day to get through my life. At least back then it was better. Can we go back? We say that from time to time, but Hebrews learned something at the sea that day from their God. And that is that we must always, in the way, face of all of these waves, journey forward. When the Israelites were faced with oppression on all sides, they turned to Moses for direction. They wanted to go back. But Moses urges them with the words that God had given to him just moments before that we find in Exodus 14.15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And as we look into Scripture... We see this moment where God is always calling people in the wilderness to keep journeying forward, to not going back. Of course, we see it with the Israelites, the Hebrew slaves, who they wanted to go back and God says to them, no, that is not what I have come here to do for you. Keep going forward. It's unknown. It's scary. You don't even know where your food will come from. But I will be with you. Keep moving forward. As we look into the New Testament, we see a moment where the disciples are in a ship on the water in Matthew and other Scripture, and we see Peter who, for some reason, always was a knucklehead who thought that he could do whatever he wanted, I guess, because he was close to Jesus. And he jumps out of the ship onto the water in the middle of a storm because he sees Jesus walking and he thinks, well, I guess I can do that too. 
And he starts to walk towards Jesus until he starts to realize that, wait a minute, I'm not Jesus. And his faith falters and he slips and begins to sink and he cries out to Jesus, save me. And immediately, we're told, Jesus reaches down his hand and pulls him back up and says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? But instead of just dunking him back in the water for not having enough faith, Jesus puts his arm around him and they walk side by side, journeying forward back to the ship. As we think about more recent history and a place where people were oppressed and where there was no hope for, but they kept moving because of their faith, one thing kept coming to mind, and I've mentioned his name in recent months, but I'm going to do it one more time at least, and that was John Lewis, who in his later years was a congressman, and some of you weren't on the same side, some of us weren't on the same side as his politics, but when he was younger, when he was in his 20s, he of course was a civil rights activist. And he was an activist who sat at lunch counters where he wasn't supposed to be and was spat upon and was beaten and was, was threatened even to the point of death if he continued forward into the unknown that he found himself in. But John Lewis, time and time again, kept going back. In his book, uh, Cross This Bridge, he talks about a specific thing that he fought for, and it's very appropriate for this year, and that was the right for black Americans to vote. Now, of course, they had the right to register to vote in the 60s at the time that John Lewis was working and, and moving towards this. But one of the places where he sought for the right to vote for black Americans, or at least the ability to do it, was in Selma, Alabama. And in Selma, Alabama in the 60s, and some of you remember this from firsthand news when you were there as younger people, they had a grandfather clause. And they said at the end of the Civil War, on the last day of the Civil War, if your grandfather was able to vote then you can come in, no problem, it's pretty easy, you can figure it out, you can register. Of course, if you're a black American in the South in the 1960s and you're looking towards the end of the Civil War and whether your grandfather had a right to vote, it's pretty evident that if your grandfather was owned by somebody else, he probably wasn't voting in the presidential elections. And so what they would do is when black Americans got there on the first and third Monday during business hours, the only time they could register to vote, they went into the office and they were told, you're black. Your grandfather obviously was not able to vote at the end of the Civil War. You've got to take a test. And so they would make them take this four-page long test that began with them having to write out a section of the Constitution, and not an easy one, a difficult one. And they technically had a choice. You can either look at it and copy it, or it can be dictated to you by someone, and you can write it down. And most of the time, the registrar would say, you don't get to read it. I'm going to read it to you. But hey, don't spell anything wrong. Don't have gra grammatical errors because if you do, you fail. And even if you don't fail, I'm going to question you on it. But when an uh, American would come in, a black American would come in and do this, they would fill it out fine. They would have no spelling errors, no grammatical errors. Then the person would say, okay, well now I'm going to ask you what it means. And you give me the exact right answer according to me, and then I'll tell you whether you can process it or not. And if they managed to pass that level, then it would go to a panel of all white, white uh, businessmen from Selma, the ones who created the application, by the way, and then they would decide whether or not that person was allowed to be registered to vote. And by the way, if they said no, you didn't get to appeal. You didn't get to ask why. You just had to accept the fact that they said no. 
And in some places, so great was the voter suppression that they would put a jar of jelly beans on the counter of the registrar's desk and they would say, if you can count all the jelly beans in this jar without taking the lid off and tell me how many are in there, then I'll let your application go through. And in other places, they would put a jar of soap and water and say, if you can count all of the soap bubbles in this jar and tell me how many are in here, then I'll let your application go through. Well, in the face of all of that, men like John Lewis and women and so many others stood every single first and third Monday outside the voter, uh, the registrar's office in Selma, even though the sheriff's office across the street, the same sheriff from the Selma Bridge, would come over and would try to get them to get upset and to react negatively so they could arrest them, sometimes arresting them for no reason. Journalists would come and they would cover it. They did this in the sun in the middle of the summer in Alabama, which I've been there. It's extremely hot. They did this in the winter when it got cold. They did it when it rained. They stood there. And they did it day after day after day after day until eventually, 52 years ago, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law saying that states can't suppress voting in that way. All Americans should have the right to vote if they want to do it. And when John Lewis was asked, why did you keep doing it? Wasn't it easier just to go back? Wasn't it easier just to stay where things were? Wasn't it easier not to be worried about being killed or being oppressed or being anything? John Lewis said this, As we participated in protest after protest, sit-in after sit-in, where crowds of uncontrollable angry people swarmed around us yelling and jeering, where we were beaten with billy clubs, lead pipes, trampled by horses, and attacked by dogs, our faith was not dampened, as many people today, looking back on the history, often wonder. It actually grew in power and strength. We felt that society had done its worst to us. It had beaten us. It had arrested us. It had put us in jail. And it still could not silence the burning fire for freedom that was guiding our work. Faith will be the lifeblood of all of your activism in such ways. And it has the power to make a way out of no way. You may be in your darkest hour. It may be darker than 10,000 nights on your path to lasting change, but there is something in you that keeps you moving, feeling your way through the night until you can see a glimmer of light. That, John Lewis says, is the power of faith. And so as he looked ahead into the wilderness ahead of him, into the the belief that there may be something ahead, as the Hebrew slaves looked ahead towards the end of that parted water and tried to figure out what is ahead of us, as Peter looked ahead towards Jesus walking on the water, each of them held on to the faith that the God who was delivering them from those oppressive states, from those oppressors, and from that place was calling them to something more. They believe that their God and our God is a God who saves. A God who is not going to leave them. A God who is not going to side with Pharaoh. Who is not going to side with the slave owners in the American South. A God who is not going to side with the people who were oppressing others just because of what they looked like. They had faith that the God that said, I am here to deliver you, keep moving forward, would guide them towards something more on the other side. And so friends, as we journey into the wilderness in our lives, no matter what it may look like, no matter what waves of fear, no matter what waves of oppression, no matter what waves of uncertainty we may face, we must know that freedom is still coming. and that God is still and always urging us forward. 
We must know that as the church of Christ who follows one who said the God who delivered the Hebrew slaves out of slavery from one of the greatest empires that existed at that time is still calling you to not be a wave of oppression, but to journey with the oppressed in the muck and the mud and walk with them to the other side. That God who says that if you just have enough faith, then the impossible will be possible no matter what you may face at the end of this journey. A God who says to us, there is always hope over the horizon, even when we can't see past the shore. And so this morning, as we journey into whatever the wilderness may look like for us, whatever the unknown may look like for us, friends, hear me say that we can not stop. God is calling us to journey forward. God is calling us to see that even though what may be behind us feels better, it is more comfortable, it's not where God is calling us to go. And so when we want to stop and give in and just let the water crash over our head, or when we want to go back and see, just let's go back to where things were, may we be a people of faith who hear a God telling us, keep going. I am a God who saves. I am a God who transforms. I am a God who delivers. Friends, as we follow that God, may we have the faith to trust that all of those things are true. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that You have called us to keep moving. In a world that constantly says, stop that constantly says, give up, that constantly says, this is the end, you call us to know that you are still with us, that you are still journeying with us forward. And not that you journey in front of us, though you do that, sometimes you stand behind us, not just as protection from what's coming, but also as a swift kick to keep moving forward. May we hear Your calling to not stop, but to trust that You are a God who saves, You are a God who delivers, and You are a God who calls us out onto and into the waters of fear and oppression and the unknown and says that I am enough and I will be with you as you journey forward. Help us to believe that. Help us to hold on to that. We pray this in the name of the One who walks on the water in front of us and calls us to come out and journey toward Him. In the name of Jesus. Amen.